happy, excited to have uh, Megan Medrano join us today. Megan is an RDLD and is an eating disorder and sports dietitian based out of Lexington, Kentucky. As a runner herself, she is passionate about eating, about helping athletes and non-athletes alike cultivate a peaceful and enjoyable relationship with food in their body. She utilizes principles of intuitive eating and health at every size into her sports nutrition education in order to help athletes find a pattern of eating that generally helps them feel their best without engaging in restrictive or unhelpful behaviors. Megan is the owner of her private practice, Run Whole Nutrition, where she sees clients both in person in Lexington, Kentucky, as well as virtually all over the country. We're so excited to have you with us today, Megan. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. How has your Thursday been? How, anything special happened today? It has been good. I'm actually traveling right now. So I'm in San Antonio at the um, USATF CCCA, I think is the long name for it, the coaches convention. Okay. Um, my husband's a coach at EKU. So I'm here with him on a little vacation. So kind of fun. Oh, that's very cool. I actually, it's yeah. funny. Um, so I work at Amherst College and we had, um, I think three or four of our coaches head to that. I was just talking oh, cool. with one of the coaches last week about it. So it's funny that you're there, but I hope the weather's nicer and you're enjoying a little bit of warmth. I guess well, yeah. Kentucky is pretty warm as well too, I would imagine. Yeah, it's like 60s here, which is a little bit warmer than Kentucky, so I'll take it. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, So Megan, um, we always like to start our podcast with this question. How did you get your start in running? Yeah, so I started running my sophomore year of high school, so kind of a little bit later than a lot of people, I think, um, that went on to run in college. But I actually started in order to get in shape for basketball. I was a basketball player first which anybody who knows me now knows me that I'm like barely 5'3 so it's like kind of funny that (laughs) I want to be a basketball player but um, that was the whole reason I joined cross country was purely just to get in shape for basketball Um, the assistant basketball coach was the assistant cross country coach so he kind of convinced me and a friend to join Um, and my first year was really just getting in shape for basketball I mean I enjoyed the cross country environment but I didn't take it super seriously Um, until my junior year when I realized like, oh, maybe I could actually be good about this um, and really started to enjoy it more. Well, I can say I played basketball in fifth grade. That was it. I (laughs) maybe scored two points and my team never won a single game. So I'm definitely not a basketball player (laughs) at all. Well, I'm definitely not anymore. (laughs) Basketball is a tough sport. Um, I can't, I'm pretty sure I can't dribble and run at the same time. Um, not <laughs> just can't do that. Um, so it, it's also refreshing um, to hear that, you know, I love, I always love when people say, maybe I could be good at this. There's like this like intuition and this thought of like hope and inspiration of like, maybe I could be really better at this or I could go far in this. And that's such a cool thing to have. Um, because we see it a lot when we're younger, but not so much as we get older. Um, so it's nice that you had that in your junior year to kind of, you know, see where, you know, running in or whatever could take you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just being in that really positive environment helped too. Mm, yeah. Definitely. Um, so as someone who was a collegiate cross country and track athlete, um, how were you able to let go of the mindset that you needed to run each day after you graduated? So we're kind of moving um, through from high school into college and then post collegiately. Yeah. So from high school, I ended up going to Bradley University in Peoria, which is how Elaine and I actually met the first time. Um, but there I actually only ran three years. 
Um, I was just a walk-on, so I didn't have any um, athletic aids. So going into my junior year, I actually hurt my hip pretty bad and was pretty much like the stereotypical runner that doesn't really listen to their body and doesn't really take care of himself very well and kept running through it um, my junior year and really just got to the point senior year where my body was just really like, this isn't okay. Like we can't keep doing this. I can't keep pushing myself through this and was kind of getting to a point with running where it wasn't something I necessarily enjoyed anymore. I had other interests outside of running and other friends outside of running and things I wanted to pursue. So um, I actually didn't run all four years. So I kind of had this weird period my senior year where I kind of had to decide what running was for me and if I even wanted running to be a part of my life. Um, and I think it was really kind of my first time I was able to practice that principle of acceptance to acknowledge that, okay, this is my reality and I don't really like it, but this is, it is what it is. And I can't go and change what's happening with my hip right now. And I can't really change this current situation with my body really just not wanting to run, like physically not able to run like it used to. Um, so it was interesting. I felt like my last year of college and even when I was, you know, just graduated, I felt this pressure that I was still supposed to run and not necessarily competitively, but just, you know, keep up with the sport just because I was surrounded by it a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was really just that practice of acceptance to notice that I don't have to do this because it doesn't serve me. Um, and really just kind of getting to a place where I could live out my values and really decide what my values actually were and that it doesn't have to be running. I'm not obligated to be a runner the rest of my life. Mm. I, I love that, Megan. It's um, so, so true. Like once we start running, you know, we can still run whenever we feel like it, but it doesn't mean that we have to run every single day. Uh, you know, it can be take whatever form or shape that it wants. And I, I remember, um, I, maybe it was this earlier this year or something I had messaged you and we were talking about how you said you taken a break from running but you've enjoyed walking mm -hmm. and I, I think that's wonderful because now that I don't have to run every day I've just really been enjoying like going hiking or going on walks like mm -hmm. tomorrow I'm going hiking with one of my good friends and like I think that's the joy of like walking versus running is that we can slow down and actually appreciate different things that we don't always get to appreciate when we're running. Yes, exactly. And I love that concept of even like connecting with your body and connecting with mm -hmm. nature too when you can walk because that's one of the things that I had to go through a really long period of just not exercising completely. Like I think I didn't do hardly any kind of exercise for like a year longer. Mm -hmm. And most people are like astounded to hear that, but really that was what I needed in order to get to a place where I could start to cultivate that trust in my body and learn what my body actually wanted to do. And now I'm at a place where I do like running. I don't like running every day, but I do like connecting with my body in that way, however often I want. Mm -hmm. So um, Alina brought up um, that walking, it seems like walking has been a really good way to, I hate, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but quote unquote, fill that void of maybe like what running was helping you do connect with nature and maybe not connect with your body as much, but um, other areas of kind of maybe just release. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, were there any other things that you did to um, kind of help get you through that year of non-exercise or um, just kind of help, I don't like, I really don't like this statement, but fill that void um, mm -hmm. that to kind of just, you know, help you along. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that runners, deal with a lot is that they use running as a way to manage stress and manage their emotions. Mm. And if we think of it in that way, 
Yes, it can be, and that can be helpful, but if that's the only way you have to manage stress and manage emotions and to have that like clear mind that a lot of runners talk about, then there may be a problem there. So I think for me, I definitely used running to numb out. I used it to, whenever I had a problem, I would go for a run and felt like when I came back from a run, I'd be able to solve it or, you know, distract from it or, you know, use running to kind of deal with issues. And during that time, I had to come to the reality of that putting that burden on running isn't fair to running, um, isn't fair to my relationship with running. And I need to find other things to deal with those things. So even, you know, just journaling or taking some time to process over things or going to therapy, all of those things are more, um, I found were more effective ways to deal with things rather than putting that on running. I love that. It almost sounds like, um, like, Running for sometimes for some people is like putting a bandaid on an issue instead yeah. of, you know, and it's so funny because we, a lot of people view running as like this like thing that cures all. It makes people so healthy, but at the same time, it can really make you very unhealthy at the same time. So I really like what you said about, you know, that you're putting a burden on running and it's not fair to running, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we kind of forget that and we get so lost in being a runner or whatever and identifying with that. So um, thank you for mentioning, you know, those other things like going to therapy or journaling because those are so important to, you know, cultivating a really good well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those tools are also so useful for us to have because, you know, we need those things. You know, when you run as a runner, you always just feel like somebody that has to have something that you're always doing. You have to be doing something, but you know, we can do other things. Like it's okay to to write or to you know draw or to be an artist or any other things that we want to do. And I think those things are important to recognize those other things, as we say, to be more than a runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important that when you run every single day, you need to reflect on like, what is your relationship to running? Are you using running to numb out, to avoid, to distract? Or is it something that you're doing because you genuinely love your body and it's a way, it's an act of self-care for you. And I think that's a question that runners need to ask themselves in order to have a long, healthy relationship with running. If you're using it as a negative way to numb out, eventually you're going to reach a point where running's probably not super enjoyable for you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, one of our next questions, Megan, to um, kind of dive a little bit deeper into what you do now is, um, I, I actually, I didn't know this, but you studied dietetics and entrepreneurship in undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you always thought that you wanted to have your own private practice uh, when you kind of first started college. Yeah, so honestly, I didn't. Um, okay. I really didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do with it. Um, honestly, my interest in dietetics was 100% because of a disordered ideas about nutrition and running. Um, I think I believed what I say like 99% of runners believe, and it's not our fault. It's diet culture's fault, but I truly wanted to study nutrition because I wanted to know like the quote unquote secrets of like what I'm supposed to eat to be lean and fast. And what are the good foods, the quote unquote good foods and the quote unquote bad foods and just all of that diet culture garbage. And really what I discovered as I learned more about that is that that's just diet culture. That's not evidence-based nutrition. That's not evidence-based nutrition therapy. Um, so it's interesting thinking back to like what I wanted to do in undergrad versus when I was leaving undergrad, because 
My approach to nutrition was completely different. I think I wanted to be a sports dietitian, like working at a university um, originally. And then I learned that's a lot of food service and that's just, that's not for me. I like that counseling relationship. So um, it was really towards the end of undergrad that I started taking those entrepreneurship classes and thinking realistically where my strengths are, what I really enjoy doing. And that was definitely one-on-one counseling. Um, and I always wanted kind of a non-traditional job. So private practice just seemed to be a good fit. Mm. Um, so you mentioned at the beginning of that statement, something I really loved. Um, and that was um, that you really wanted to know what the secrets were to a perfect diet. And you recognize it was diet um, cu- culture garbage, but that, it wasn't evidence-based nutrition and evidence-based nutrition therapy. So for those of you who are listening, and I'm actually really curious because I don't think I've ever heard that ter- those terms before, would you mind sharing a little bit about that and then maybe way list- or ways listeners can, you know, try to avoid that garbage but look more into, you know, um, evidence-based nutrition if they're interested in that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So evidence-based nutrition is really – using research to guide what we're doing. So um, I was trained in a clinical internship when I went on to do like my fifth year of studies in a Mm -hmm. clinical environment. Everything we do is based on research. Mm -hmm. Um, So there needs to be enough research to prove that we're doing, that we're recommending a person eat a certain way rather than just making like random recommendations. So when I say evidence-based nutrition therapy, what I do with my clients is that I only recommend things and I only do things that we know in research are recommended that are, you know, proven to be helpful or beneficial to that person. Um, diet culture, on the other hand, is what we hear out there in our culture. Um, so diet, the diet industry is like a $68 billion industry. And we are constantly sold messages about here are the good foods, vegetables are good, that desserts are bad, and that there's all these toxins in our foods and we need to do these juice cleanse and there's all these fad diets and sugar is evil. And all of that stuff isn't actually evidence-based. Like we always hear that sugar is just like the worst thing you could ever have, but sugar doesn't kill a person. Like sugar, if you eat sugar, you're not just going to suddenly drop dead or explode with like disease. And that, that is really diet culture selling us that message that we have to cut out sugar completely. Um, so that's really where I draw the line is that I want to recommend things that are evidence-based and let my clients know like, Hey, if you want sugar every once in a while, like, sure, go ahead and have it. It's not going to kill you. Whereas diet culture kind of says the opposite just to instill a lot of fear. Um, so for people who are really wondering how to sort all this out, I think the best thing you can do is just work with a dietitian. Um, just because dietitians are trained in this stuff. And really, if you go on Google and look this stuff up or, even just like talk to a professional runner about this stuff. I think they're vulnerable to diet culture too. Um, So I think that's where talking with somebody who really has spent their career studying this stuff is really important. Mm -hmm. That's a great, that's great. Yeah. Go ahead, Alina. I was just going to say, you brought up a good point. Like um, not listening to like, even like a professional runner because so many people, um, while these people do have great advice and they've had been through experiences to make them professional runners, it doesn't make them, necessarily certified in these other areas which we sometimes think oh they're they're great they they made it to this level they must know what they're doing whereas mm-hmm. someone who is a dietitian actually knows what they're doing and we need to be mindful of who we're seeking advice from mm-hmm. yeah and i think too you know dietitians have that knowledge from a nutrition standpoint and i know this is something we may talk about later too but 
a person's body is really the best gauge we have for that. Like, I think that's where diet culture comes in is diet culture says you have to eat this. It's imposing all these external rules. Whereas as a dietitian, my work with a client is saying, okay, what is your body saying? Like, let's use that because that's a better tool since that's what we're putting the food into in the first place. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's also to point out to our listeners um, that it's not always easy to do that. It's not always easy to know what your body's saying, especially if you're like maybe just starting into intuitive eating. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, but from what I gather, like if you're just starting to get into intuitive eating or just starting to really reconnect with your body, like if you were using for example, running to numb out, um, and you're now maybe stopping running and you're feeling all these different things that you never felt before. Like it's not easy to reconnect with your body and listen to what it's saying. So, um, listeners, it's, you know, don't be afraid to struggle with this a little bit, I think is a good thing to keep in mind as well. Yes, a hundred percent agree. I'm so glad you said that. Cause I think that is something that people can hear this and think like, well, I am not near that point. Mm-hmm. And I know I have clients that you come to me and feel like I am not near where I want to be. And that's completely normal, completely okay. And that's why we do this work and we talk about things and yeah, definitely just have self-compassion for yourself, at whatever step you're at. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <clears throat> I'd uh, go to our next question was, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the health at every size approach and um, I guess this is more just my curiosity. I've done a little bit of research, but is this like a special certification or um, did you read, I know there's a book um, about it. So I didn't know if, um, what you had done to um, learn more about this approach. Yeah. So there is a book um, just called Health of Every Size by Linda Bacon, which I would highly recommend anyone read. I think it's really, really good. I um, mean, it's an easy read too. So I definitely recommend that. Um, but otherwise, you know, health at every size, it's really just a social justice movement. And I think that's the part that a lot of people don't realize is that it's a social justice movement really aimed at reducing weight stigma and then reducing other forms of social discriminations and then also promoting an equal access to healthcare um, for all people and all bodies. So it's kind of divided up into about five different principles, which I can go through those if you would like. Yeah, okay. yeah, I would love to hear. <laughs> yeah, so um, the first one is weight inclusivity. So that's really saying that, you know, we accept and respect that there's a wide diversity of body shapes and sizes, and we're really going to reject the pathologizing of certain weights. So that kind of factors into the BMI standards. We think that being above a certain BMI is automatically indicative of poor health, and really we know that people in higher BMIs can be a perfect health, um, whereas people in smaller bodies can have different diseases. So BMI is really not a good marker um, of even determining health, but that is, again, what diet culture has sold us, that if you're in a larger body, then you automatically have poor health, and that's just not true. Um, The next one is health enhancement. So that is really supporting health policies that improve access to health, access to information and services, Um, And then also promoting practices that improve well-being um, and really thinking of well-being beyond just the physical, but also like the emotional, um, the spiritual, the um, economic needs of a person. So looking at health in a broader picture. Um, And again, I think that's where, especially as dietitians, we think it's all just about food and exercise. But really, we need to look at the broader picture and acknowledge that our health is not just determined by what we eat and how much we exercise. It's really those larger social structures that we exist in. 
Um, so that's all about just um, improving those systems so that all people have access to healthcare. Um, the other ones is respectful care. So that's just working to end weight discrimination, weight stigma, um, and also just acknowledging that those social environments that a person's in, um, different socioeconomic status, races, races, gender, sexual orientations, all of those things um, affect our health. And then the last two are... Uh, Megan, sorry. What, I'm sorry. What was that last one? Respectful? Respectful care. Respectful care. Okay. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I thought you said hair and obviously <laughs> that's not right, but I was like, what the heck is that? Like, okay, sorry. Continue. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, but after those, after those three, there's two more, which is eating for well-being. So that's really um, what really my job is really focused on. Of course, we address all of these 100%, but most people come to me eating for well-being, and that's really promoting these flexible and individualized eating um, behaviors that are based on hunger, satiety, nutrition needs, fullness, pleasure, um, not these external regulating external regulated eating patterns like diets that tell you this is how many calories you have to have, this is how many macros you have to have, um, that are really just focused on weight control when we get down to it. I think when most people think about nutrition, they're doing it for weight control, whereas um, health at every size says, let's figure out how to eat that's actually going to be best for your well-being instead of what diets tell you you have to do. Um, and then the last one is life-enhancing movement, which I think runners get <laughs> that one pretty well. Um, but that's just supporting physical activity for all people and all body sizes um, and encouraging people to do movement that they, that they enjoy and not something that they have to do rigidly. Mm. Wow. That, uh, thank oh. you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. Megan, I, I didn't know all those, um, the different um, five, you said five mm -hmm. principles. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And really, you know, I think when we hear and like list all of that out, it can sound like really fancy and like this really like elusive thing that we're working towards. But the way I break it down for clients is that this is again, going back to like that evidence-based nutrition therapy, that is what health every size is. It's just taking away that diet culture layer that kind of comes onto nutrition and that kind of infiltrates our profession mm -hmm. um, and really our sport too. So I always, you know, tell people that if, I only talk about food and exercise. I'm kind of doing you a disservice because food and exercise are only one part of our health. Like we need to talk about the various stigmas you experience, um, your socioeconomic status, everything that factors into your, um, into your health um, because food and exercise isn't, isn't the only thing. Mm, I just love that. I think it's so, I don't know much about this either um, and I'm learning more about it tonight than I ever have. I've heard the term mentioned before. We had um, Maggie on our podcast and Hannah Meyer on our podcast, and they mentioned the term, but we've never really dug deep into it. So I'm really happy that you, you know, you gave us those five principles because it's definitely given me something to think about moving forward. But, um, and I think that a really important one is that last one, life enhancing movement. Um, and I think in general too, um, this looks so different for everybody. Like I think that from what I'm understanding, like a lot of people think that health at every size or even intuitive eating looks the same for everybody. That means everybody wants to eat donuts or everybody wants to eat broccoli and, or everybody wants to be a runner or a skier, you know? So, but actually it's so different because everybody's well being is so different. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I think that's a, really neat aspect to health at every size if I'm if I'm understanding it correctly oh yeah 100% and 
I think too, with that, like people have the opportunity to choose if they don't want to move. And that's another thing that's a component of that is that we get to choose the wide range of movement that we want to engage in. If there's a person that wants to be like an ultra runner and that really feels good to them, then like, by all means do that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to exercise at all, you have the right to do that without being shamed and guilted for that. So it's really just, sorry, go go on. No, 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 go ahead. So it's really just accepting that, you know, people can choose wherever they want to be on that spectrum and that we should support people in whatever they choose. I was just going to say, Megan, I am so happy you said that. I think that is such a beautiful statement and I'm so happy. I just want to thank you for saying that, I should say. Yeah, I'm so glad we get to talk about this. I always love talking about health at every size, <laughs> especially with runners. <laughs> I can tell. There's a lot of passion in your face and energy, and it's, it's really great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from what we gather um, from our research kind of on you, that sounds really creepy. I didn't mean it to be that creepy <laughs> sounding, but um, you emphasize working together and being a partner with your patients or your clients. Um, how has this approach made a difference in the work that you do? Yeah. So one of the things I really noticed when I went through my like traditional dietetic training, which I have no criticisms or ill will towards my training. I loved it. Um, but one of the things I really learned about that was that felt like we were imposing our nutrition beliefs or what we felt like was best onto the client or onto the patient before we really like got to know them and determined if it was best. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I really learned by doing that is that I just didn't feel comfortable being like this authority figure going into, so I'm thinking of like in my internship, if we had to do nutrition education with a patient who was in the hospital, Mm. um, I didn't feel comfortable going in there and saying, okay, you have heart disease. Here's everything you should be eating and things you should not be eating. When I don't know what's going on in their life, I don't know if food even has any impact on why they have heart disease. There could be a million other things. They could be weight cycling. Maybe they've been on diets forever and we know dieting causes weight cycling, which is weight going up and down, which increases cardiovascular um, disease. So I don't know any of that. And I'm just coming in here telling them this is how you have to eat without really knowing what's best for them. Um, So just going through that, I just kind of felt a little bit icky um, doing that. And that's one of the things like as I've transitioned into private practice, really understanding that like I am on the same level with my clients and I you know, I'm not above them. We're just, we're completely on the same level. And what we really work towards is them explaining, you know, what is like from their perspective. And I'm just here as a guide to help support them. I'm not here to tell them what to do. I'm here to maybe just be curious about some things and maybe start to question some things and really dive deep into um, everything that they're experiencing so that we can really learn what's best for their body. That's awesome. Uh, to me, that I don't know if this is what you use the name for it, but um, I learned this past semester in school was motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what you use, but um, I had never heard of that before this semester at school. And we were paired with like um, clients that we help coach and emphasize physical activity over exercise with. And so that was a totally new concept for me. And I really enjoyed it because as you probably do, it, it's um, helping to let your, your client guide the direction of your meetings and where you're going. And um, it's totally a totally different um, way of shaping and reframing things for me but I think it's so important as you said you don't want to go in and jump in and tell someone hey this is what you need to do without first understanding this person and where their their um, beliefs and motivations lie 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's another thing I always tell people, like, if you choose to work with me, that is your choice. And there's things you want to get out of this situation that I'm not going to come in here and just say what you need to do. Just one, because I don't really know exactly like what is going to be best for your body. And the only way we're going to get that information is if we uncover things from your body. Like I tell all my clients, your body knows more than me because I, I could work with you every day for the rest of your life and I never will know what it's like to be in your body. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about these things and getting to know what's actually best for you rather than me just like making those random recommendations. So yeah, that principle of motivational interviewing, I think is really, really great and really helpful. It seems like, and it sounds like you almost need a counseling degree as well, Megan, like in addition to like all that you've done in your past to become an RD and an L, what was it, an LD? Um, mm-hmm. Like, you feel like you need it to be a, a mental health counselor or a licensed social worker as well, because you're really digging deep with these people into their past. Or, um, so I guess this is kind of a random question. It's not on our list here, but do you work like simultaneously in kind of like a team environment? So, like, say if someone comes to you and you know they want to work with you on their um, eating patterns or you know finding health at every size. Um, but they also work with a therapist. Do you work kind of as a team with that therapist? If I mean, of course, if the client allows that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely do. And with working in eating disorders, um, I pretty much require that all my clients see a therapist. Awesome. Um, so not in every single case, but since I do a lot of eating disorders, pretty much all of them are also seeing a therapist. Mm-hmm. So I call myself a nutrition therapist just because I don't feel like I practice like a clinical dietitian and that I'm not like have my calculator out, like determining your nutrition needs. I'm more of like determining why you eat and what is actually best for you holistically. Um, But yeah, I always work with a therapist because I tell my clients too, you know, I work more like a therapist than like a clinical dietitian sometimes I think, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean I'm a therapist and that doesn't mean I fill that role. So I Mm -hmm. always 100% have a therapist on board too. Gotcha. Um, that's great. I think that's really important. And I guess maybe kind of a follow-up question with that, especially if you work with individuals with eating disorders. So how do you implement health at every size with someone who has an eating disorder, especially if, you know, they're coming to you and, you know, you don't want to tell them what to eat, but, you know, you kind of have to recommend them either to maybe, well, I don't know, eating disorders look so different. So um, I don't know. How, how do you work with someone with an eating disorder and, and kind of develop health at every size mindset or avoid the diet culture talk? Yeah, that's a loaded question. It is. I know. I said it and I was like, oh my God, I just laid it all out on the table right there. Well, I'll give a brief overview. Perfect. So we'll just that's hit perfect. some main points. Um, so one is that health every size, just the social justice aspect is integrated in everything I do. So in terms of like, if we need to weight restore, Mm-hmm. If a person's weight ends up higher than like BMI standards, like if they're, and I hate these terms, but if they end up in like the overweight or obese, which I'm saying like quotation marks around that people yeah. can't see they're listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, if they end up in that range, that's cool. That's completely fine. That's where their body wants to be. And we're not pathologizing that. Um, I don't rigidly try and control someone's meal plan, um, which I'll talk about that in a second, but I don't rigidly try and control that so that their weight stays in this like certain range. We really let the body do what the body needs to do and use different markers um, to determine if the body is in a state that it needs to be. And that's kind of going on the medical side, so I won't dive into that. Totally fine. Um, But in terms of like the nutrition aspect, you know, people come in seeing me at all different places. Sometimes they're calorie counting, sometimes they're on really restrictive diets, sometimes they're not eating periods, sometimes their eating's pretty, you know, 
they have a wide range of eating habits, mm-hmm. um, sometimes really irregular. So sometimes we may start with a meal plan just because for some situations in order to ha- go through that nutrition rehabilitation phase, if they're, you know, have some malnutrition going on, we need a meal plan initially because you can't necessarily like listen to your body in those mm-hmm. times. Um, but really our goal is to progress to that place of intuitive eating. So in terms of what we do nutritionally, um, I think when I say that like I'm here to listen to my clients' bodies, I think that I 100% am. And I also think that we have to acknowledge that when you're in the stages of a clinical eating disorder, you can't really listen to your body. So that's where I kind of integrate both in that my clients' bodies are very, very smart and they're going to tell us what it needs but we also may need a little bit of structure in the, in the beginning stages. That's a perfect answer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just, I think for those, we do have um, a kind of a population of listeners who have struggled with an eating disorder or are working mm-hmm. through one or, you know, um, maybe recovered in, you know, tempting to intuitive eat or um, work through health at every size. So I think just a little nugget to help them kind of move forward and get um, a dietitian's perspective on that might be really helpful. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I will say too, if anyone listening is in that stage of an eating disorder, um, I think when we talk about like intuitive eating, I see a lot of people come to me saying, okay, I want to start intuitive eating from like eating barely anything. Mm. And that's not really necessarily possible. We kind of have to have a middle stage in between there. So for anyone who's listening, who thinks, okay, this sounds great. I'm going to go buy the intuitive eating book and figure out how to eat intuitively. I'd really recommend working with a professional because we'll get you there. We may just need to do a little tweaks here and there. So kind of tagging along with that, um, I want to hear a little bit more about um, Roanhold Nutrition. What services do you offer for your clients? And um, Because we've heard a lot about your work with your clients, but maybe there's some specialized things that you do that other people don't. Yeah, so mostly what I do is individual one-on-one sessions with clients. So my office is based out of Lexington, Kentucky. So I see probably about 70, 75% of the people there in person in Lexington, but I also um, work with people virtually all over the country. Um, so it really kind of depends on the stage of your eating disorder, if you need to see someone in person or virtually, but um, there are a lot of people from all over that I see virtually. And I love seeing people virtually just because I think runners don't necessarily have a great place to go for eating disorder care. And I think that's really a gap we have in our sport is that the percentage of those with eating disorders in our sport is really high and we don't have the number of services to match that. So I try and offer my services pretty virtually, um, just pretty widely if, if people need that. So that's mainly what I do. I do offer some groups. So I have one that's going to start, I don't know when this is going to air, but it's going to start early January. Um, for those looking to learn the principles of intuitive eating, it's called Nourish with Intuition. Um, so I do occasional groups and occasional speaking events and things like that, but it's mostly one-on-one work that I offer um, at Run Hill Nutrition. Oh, that's great. And actually, I think we hope to launch this episode this upcoming Monday, which is like oh, cool. December. Let me look at my calendar really quickly. Oh, December 24th. It's Christmas Eve. Duh. Um, oh, perfect. So, yeah, we hope to launch it then. So um, for those of you who are listening, make sure to head over to Megan's website. And it's, is it just runholenutrition.com? Is that? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay. So runholenutrition.com, and maybe you can find some more information there and um, do this awesome program because it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. We're closing registration at um, midnight on New Year's Eve. So okay. um, I guess I'll give people a little bit of time. But yeah, it's a group just to learn the principles of intuitive eating and start to integrate them into your life. So yeah, if anyone listening wants to sign up, you got a few days. <laughs> And um, listeners, I'll, what I'll do is I'll um, 
post it in the show notes. So you can just click, go to our website and click on the show notes if you want to do it that way as well. And it'll bring you right to um, Megan's uh, website. So kind of tagging on that now, um, we're entering the holiday, well, we're kind of in the holiday season. Um, So this is a really tough time for individuals who have struggled with eating disorders or just just being a person in general in the holiday season is really hard, especially with diet talk and diet culture. Um, so what advice do you have for individuals going into this time of season of the year? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing we can think of is just figuring out how to establish some boundaries around that diet talk. Um, and the way I explain it to my clients is that we can kind of think of this from two different perspectives and we can really take some time to dwell on these to figure out what's really going to be best for you and your situation. So one might be speaking out against this diet talk and then the other may be silently holding firm. Um, so speaking out, maybe that looks like someone is making a comment about your body or someone's making a comment about, Oh, you're really eating that extra piece of dessert or you're eating, you know, whatever people making comments about food. Maybe for you, it's going to be best just to establish that boundary between this diet culture stuff and then what's really best for you. And maybe that means, you know, telling people, hey, I don't really appreciate, you know, you commenting about food or my body or kind of just trying to sidestep um, that conversation. Maybe it is speaking out and telling people, hey, this is my boundary. This is something I don't really appreciate um, and kind of leaving it there. Um, maybe it looks like telling people that and then who knows if they'll respect that or not. Maybe sometimes they'll continue just to you know, throw jabs at you. And maybe then you just have to leave that situation. Um, if that boundary you're establishing isn't, isn't respected. So for some people that is really powerful and just being able to verbalize that and to Mm -hmm. verbalize that boundary and let people know this is what I tolerate and this isn't. Um, and then for others, and I think this is kind of the more common one that a lot of people use is that concept of silently holding firm. So that is just knowing that people can make all of these comments but you don't have to justify your food choices. You don't have to say anything back in order just to keep doing what's best for you. And I think that's, you know, before going into the holidays or before going into like a difficult meal, just knowing that, okay, I know what's best for me. I know what is best for my body. I've talked this through with my dietitian or, you know, I've really thought this through what I actually need to eat, what's going to be best for my body. And maybe it's just knowing that, you know, people are going to say stuff. Diet culture is everywhere. And, Maybe that's just the point where you don't necessarily have to say anything. You can just kind of hold firm in your truth and know that that, you know, is valuable and that's something that should be respected and that's valid. Um, and then with that, I think we also need to acknowledge that it's important to have compassion for others that are making those comments. Um, and, you know, for some people, even just thinking of the fact that like they're making that comment because they're a victim of diet culture, like every single one of us is a victim of diet culture. Um, and just holding compassion for them too and acknowledging like this is really hard stuff that everyone's going mm-hmm. through, going through um, and I don't necessarily have to have to deal with that. Um, and then with that too, having compassion for yourself and acknowledging like this is hard, but I'm still going to choose to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an awesome answer. And also, if I'm not mistaken, I think was it last year, maybe you wrote a blog post about? Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the concept of like establishing boundaries around yeah. holiday meals. Yeah. yeah. So, um, Kelsey, I can try to find that, or, or I can yeah. we can put a link for that too. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. I I think I remember reading it, or I, I stumbled across it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And um, another thing I was going to say too, um, Megan, you're super active on your uh, social media and as a, I can remember, you do a lot of questions, a lot of live videos too. Mm -hmm. So for somebody also that um, maybe is interested in like asking you questions, but maybe not um, fully um, maybe seeking services from you, you also do such a wonderful job like answering questions anybody has and, and uh, putting yourself out there, like having a video of yourself, which sometimes, you know, that can be a little scary to mm -hmm. yourself and share that too. But um, I think you do a wonderful job with your social media and all of the posts that you share and everything. Um, I find them super helpful. So. Mm, thank you. That's so sweet. Yeah. Instagram is something that I feel like I'm super like not tech savvy, but somehow that's been a way to grow my business. So I've kind of had to use it. Um, but yeah, I love doing those videos just for to be able to connect with people um, if we don't work together, just because I think there's not great places to go. So try and um, just make that a safe space where people can ask questions. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that you do. And I, I also love just how you outline that. Um, to this week. And I, I think it's important. I've really never heard an, uh, somebody that I follow on Instagram say like, this is a safe space for us. And mm. I think it's really awesome that you acknowledge that and put it out there, even though, you know, there were some things I had to deal with to recognize that we needed to share that. But I, I think that's really mm. important as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to connect through that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so as we begin to wrap up, one, um, we have three questions that we like to finish with. Um, mm -hmm. So, one of them is what's currently making you thrive? So I think just traveling right now has been super nice. <laughs> um, I've been gone, I guess, for a couple days now, but I've been able to see clients virtually while I'm here while still mm -hmm. just kind of being able to explore San Antonio. So that's been something that I've really enjoyed, just kind of getting out of Kentucky um, a little bit and being able to explore. Mm, yeah, that's always a nice change of pace. I think even because Elena's home, well, home kind of right now, um, and so I think maybe going from like one place to another, even just like during the holidays, which can be stressful at some points in time, but also just getting a different perspective of where you are. And like, I, I also think what you just said, Megan, too, is like kind of working from a different space. Like, you know, when you were in school and like you couldn't get work done in your room. So you went to a cafe or you went to like the yeah. library or something like that. Just working in a different space just brings so much energy. It's, it's quite exciting when you think about it. So I love how simple and refreshing that answer was and how, how that really shows what you care about doing and also where you, you care about being and like environmentally as well. Yeah, I'm so fortunate to have a job that lets me travel too. Mm -hmm. So I definitely try and soak that up while I can. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, okay, so what advice would you give to your younger self? So I think the biggest thing is that nutrition isn't so complicated. Mm -hmm. I think that I was really victim to diet culture like a lot of runners are. And I thought that there was something I had to eat in order to be like quote unquote healthier. And I had to eat these certain foods to be fast. And I think that it's been a really weird and cool process of just studying nutrition and kind of learning how to trust my body too. And even seeing now that I eat fast food occasionally and running feels so much better to me. <laughs> in a body that can eat fast food. And like, that is something I never thought could happen. And even just thinking back to like my college running days, I was tired 100% of the time when I ran. Now running feels great to me because it's something that I feel like I'm genuinely taking care of my body. So I would definitely tell myself that like, you don't have to only eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds. Like you can go to Arby's or McDonald's occasionally and your body will run just fine. <laughs> Oh, I love that. That is such good 
Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. And um, our last question is, what does a strong runner chick mean to you? Yes, I love this question. So to me, I think being a strong runner chick means acknowledging that diet culture exists, but also acknowledging that our bodies are awesome and they're smart and we can trust them. So it's really saying, okay, we can have all this external pressure on us. We can have all these factors that are weighing us down, but we know that our bodies are smart and that there's something that we can trust and we can take care of and we can respect. And that's really what I love that you guys are doing is that you're really trying to bring that out of runners um, just to let them know that they can trust themselves and they can love their bodies and they can take care of them. So yeah, that's definitely what it means to me. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and caveat to listeners, as we mentioned earlier, it's hard to get to that point in time, but we all believe in you and we, and we think you can do it if you're not there yet. Um, so Megan, thank you so, so, so much for taking the time this evening to chat with us. Um, gosh, I feel like I learned so much. I don't know about you, Elena. Yes, I, I did. And I was actually looking forward to speaking with you tonight, Megan. Um, this was, I, I think they're all important things that, um, sometimes I need to, to hear a refresher on too. So I hope that anyone listening was also able to pick up some great advice and, um, learn something. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. I love doing these. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we'll have a part two in this upcoming future. Um, we'd love to have you back on, Megan. Um, yes, we'll definitely have to do that. <laughs> um, so Strong Rider Chicks, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Um, we hope you have a happy holiday season. Um, stay well rested and, and at peace as much as you can. And we hope to have you join us soon. Thank you all. Bye.